And beauty is so part of how I see the world that I didn't know it was a thing until people started telling me, oh, wild woman is very aesthetic. I really like your aesthetic or I get DMs. I love your fleets or you really have this taste. And I wasn't aware of it that way because to me, it was just part of me. It was just so obvious. So it wasn't something I would talk about. Welcome to another episode of Hype Fury Presents. In this episode, I talked to Sam Wild, aka Wild Women. Sam was born in Italy and lived in 25 different places all over the world. She organized expensive trips for the rich and famous before she started doing agency design work. In this episode, we talk about tips how to exceed expectations, interesting angles to land customers, and how giving people a certain feeling can lead to Twitter growth. My name is Unique, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoyed the show. So, Sam, you're known on Twitter as Wild Women. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, indeed. Hi, Anito. My dad was worked as an expat, and my mom was a humanitarian. So, basically, we would travel a lot. Sometimes my dad would travel alone, but mainly for those two to four-year missions, we would move all together as a family. So, I did that until I turned basically 18. So I did like three high schools, for example. I've had over 25 addresses growing up. So that was pretty wild. (laughs) And after that, well, it was college. So same thing. I would study somewhere, do internships somewhere else. I had long internships because I studied tourism and marketing. And then for the summers, I would work in hospitality. So I did that until I graduated and that is how I actually lived in two, three places a year. Wow. And so did any of your, like your parents' upbringing have having to do with your choice of study with anything you did? (laughs) That's funny you ask because actually, yeah, I was preparing the entrance for art school when I was in in high school. We called it Les Beaux-Arts, which is the basically the best art school in France, in Paris. And my dad would say, hey, artists do not make a living. So you need to find something else to do. And since you're really good at learning languages, and I was very passionate about politics and economics. So he told me, you need to study tourism and maybe become a translator for the UN or something. So I did that. And didn't, you know, give much thought about it. And obviously, after six months, I was like, "Ugh, I don't like this. (laughs) It's not what I want to (laughs) do. So I started learning graphic design on the side, basically. Okay. But you did keep going with the study? You hated it, but you kept going? Yes, because I couldn't actually, I was very stubborn. And I couldn't actually be called a loser by my father, right? And so... I was very proud at that time. So I did went through and I went until I got a master's degree in finance, actually. (laughs) So yeah, but I worked this whole time. I never took a break or holiday or vacation. I would would work every holiday and increase my expertise in hospitality. I would learn design and on the side as a hobby because I was passionate about it. I even worked for free in an art gallery just because I enjoyed it. And once I graduated and I actually, I learned how to like it in a sense, right? And it taught me a lot of things because I would work in so many places around the world and I would meet so many different people. It was a great experience. It was really hard, but it was a really great experience overall. So in the end, once I hit all of these goals, I would be like, okay, I need to master luxury tourism marketing. I need to understand corporate tourism. I need to this and this and this and this. And once I did all of that, the last main goal was to actually become the general manager of a big resort, which I did at 26 years old. So I was like, okay, I hit it. You know, I'm done now. <laughs> I can't quit, <laughs> basically. <laughs> After that, I was free, basically. Cool. And did you decide to like do those things because you knew that that was where the money is? 
Actually, no, not at all. Because honestly, it was a horrible job. It is a horrible job. You do it only out of passion. It's not something you, you do for the money at all. So I really liked it because it's all about giving the customer an experience, which is why I became after that a brand specialist as well, because it's all about that. It's in the details every day. And this is what luxury is about. I would be at the hotel at 6 a.m. Sometimes I'd leave at midnight. And that would happen a couple of times a week. I would forget to eat, for example. I would take naps in a room because I was too exhausted. But I was passionate. I didn't care. So I did it as long as I could until my body was like, okay, we're just going to shut down everything because you need to take a break, <laughs> basically. And that's pretty much how I stopped. And I, I took the time to breathe and realize that I actually did it. I improved the results at the hotel and which is why they hired me in the first place right and so i can stop because i achieved my personal goal my personal victory and it wasn't for the money so then i just left and it became a, a hospitality school right after so that was like the good thing about it in the end so cool and so and then you told me that you landed like a, a marketing job like designing 20k holiday packages how did you land that job and how did that go Oh, yeah. Basically, when I started my first, first, first internship, it was as a travel agent, right? So with Lauren and in the travel industry, you have like regular trips. People go there. Old people, usually they buy tickets and that's it. But then you have old people who are a little bit scared, who need comfort and all that stuff. So there was a big part of segmentation and target and knowing your target audience, right? And there was this distributor travel distributor called Kuoni, who would sell luxury travels in Southeast Asia. So basically, there are really complicated travels, logistically speaking, based on the needs, individual needs of the client. You have to clip this part with this part, which is pretty challenging. And you can easily, easily go over 20K for let's say a three weeks trip. Yeah, so you have multiple flights, domestic and international, you have multiple hotels. Yes, and then guides and the food and the excursions and the activities, so yeah. How did you sell those? How did you find your target audience? How did you talk to them? The thing is that I started actually doing it two years after that, and I was working for this small agency and they would do the cold outreach. So they would give me the warm leads directly. And this is probably why I have a hard time with cold outreach today, because I've never really done it. <laughs> so, But basically, I was in charge of the Italian market. So all my clients were Italians. And obviously, this is a very wealthy clientele. So they were already hooked, basically. All I had to do is just set up, well, their wishes and make them come true. Okay, I want to land in a helicopter on this coast and then i want to go and eat lobster on this beach basically so it, it's all about taking what they want and making it true no matter what there's no no basically in the industry whatever you want we can make it happen that's how it went yeah so people were buying instead of you were selling and so they were you know just basically telling you, hey, I want a helicopter? Was it you just taking notes and then making it come true? Or how did that go? Yeah, basically, I would be on the phone with them, have a primary conversation, understand what they want and understand who they are, because that is very, very important. The whole thing in the work is to anticipate their needs. So just like what some closers do on sales calls where they try to feel the person and it becomes so natural to them to actually answer to their objections. It's kind of the same thing with their hidden desires. So I would try and feel and listen to who they are and anticipate what type of reactions we would get once they arrived or once they didn't get what they wanted or if they did get what they want. So all that type of stuff. It's all about anticipation. And this is the true luxury because we get to a point where the client doesn't even have to ask, you know, and you thought of it first. And this is where the wow moment appears. And this is where 
they actually accept and are willing to pay more, basically. So it, it was all about getting to that point. And how'd you do it other than being on the phone? It's obviously taking notes. And as an agency, we have a, a network of concierge, of all this type of stuff, helicopter driver, uh, pilots, all the type of services available for a destination. So all this stuff we already know. Because if we sell a destination, we have to be experts into it, right? So we have to know what it is possible. I'd like to talk about two things here. So one is, how do you get these people on the phone? Yeah, like they're not people who have you know, a normal day job. They're, they're millionaires, probably entrepreneurs. Either they sold their company or you know, they're just making a lot of money. And the second part I'd also like to discuss is, Run us through like the person who wanted the helicopter thing, the whole shabam. Run us through a call like that and how you could anticipate things on the phone and during that trip. Oh, wow. Okay. That was such a long time ago. All right. So how do we get them? It wasn't me. It was mainly the, the CEO who would find them, but that was through corporate networks. So we would get in basically through crafting a corporate experience for a business. And from there, we would land individual private clients. So the activities were sold for corporate purposes were very, very exclusive. So because of that, well, employees would actually have a good time and then come to us and be like, okay, so would you be able to organize something like this? But, you know, for me and my family, and we would say, obviously, yes. Other than that, I know that we used to go to a lot of fairs and international meetups. So, and, and those were very high energy. We would be on the fair all day talking and selling and giving business cards all day. And then you rush to have lunch with 20 new people. And then again in the afternoon. And then we have a dinner with shows. And uh, so it was very high energy, authentic you know, the plane back home and we do it three weeks later. So it was all about networking events. A lot of that specialized in tourism and hospitality or luxury or corporate meetings. It depends. And after that, it's, you know, they pretty helped. And then it was, at the time, it was the beginning of outreach. They would outreach on LinkedIn a lot. So I'm talking about this, that was like five years ago. So my boss would actually create this page on LinkedIn and go and DM people and look at them. And that was pretty funny though to watch. And then once that was closed, he would give the Italian market to me and the French one to somebody else in the office and we'd just keep going like that. Interesting. And so he targeted like C-level uh, people probably wanted to do like an offsite or an all hands or maybe like a board meeting somewhere out of the office. And then those same people contacted you again and said, hey, I'd like this, but then for a family trip. Yeah. So most of the time it was that. Yes, absolutely. And so run us through, could be like the helicopter call or another call that you had and run us through the part, you know, about anticipation how do you, you know, go through that? How do you, yeah, become like one with the customer where you can anticipate what they want and how you can exceed expectations during the trip? Well, to become actually good at it, it was just like, if you're a good observer, it's pretty easy. And then all the time spent in networking events and fairs and meetings, conferences, all that stuff helped a lot because you have to... Be on your feet and be real quick to respond and sell, obviously, your business. So what we would do is, well, these type of clients, usually, especially for something like helicopters, it's something that they already did and they just want to add it to their trip. That's one thing. And the other thing is that when you actually study the target audience and customers, there are some stereotypes that actually turn out to be true. So for example, if you're targeting someone who's corporate, who's very active, you can feel it in their voice, they need a lot of activities. So they need a gym, they need high-speed Wi-Fi, they need 
good food, but not vegan, for example. So you're not going to send him to, for example, what's it called again? The Body Holiday in San Lucia, which is all about wellness and calm and serenity and relaxing. No, they're not about that, for example. If it's an old couple, they need like 36 more times more assistance than you know anybody else so they need a guide they need a, a driver that speaks their language they need additional services in the room they need to be either with a great view or not sometimes they don't want to be with the they don't want to have want to have the east view because they already wake up super early on their own so it's kind of like small details like that and basically it's human knowledge like once you spend a lot of time with a lot of different types of humans, you get to know these similarities. 70% of people over 50 or 60 can have the same needs. Same thing with corporate people. If they're married, they're going to want the same thing. They'll want a swimming pool for the kids or a beach nearby uh, with a beach guard. I don't know if that's correct, but you know, somebody to watch their kids or a kids club something like that. Singles, they, they might want something that moves, that is very uh, festive. So it's just with habit, you can actually start anticipating some general information <laughs> like that. And then you adapt basically on the call. Obviously, you get to know them a little bit better so you can be more specific. And then once they're actually on a trip, how do you, you know, exceed the expectations? Usually we prepare this in advance. So once you have the whole book trip, for example, we think about bonuses. If they're going to buy more from us or not, we can give some extra gifts, for example. So like actual gifts or some surprise dinner from this fancy chef, maybe that they thought they were going to have dinner in a regular restaurant, but actually they're having this beautiful scenery built up on the beach. And it's, it's small little things like that. But everything, everything had to be experience oriented. It was all about the feeling that you create, this wow moment that you create for the client. And so maybe during that time or after that time, you started with your web development. Why did you decide to do that? Well, like I said, I've always wanted to do art. I just never thought about doing digital art because <laughs> I used to paint a lot with oil paint and, and draw and do some photography. So I never knew that was a possibility because obviously in my environment, I couldn't see that. Even when I was working at that time in college, in those universities I went to, there was never, for example, a major in digital arts or something. So I was never exposed to it. So I would just do it for fun in my room after my homework <laughs> or after work, basically. <laughs> and I would just go on YouTube and understand how it was. And I remember I was trying to learn WordPress and it was a nightmare because it, it was so much more complicated than it is now, for example, because there weren't like easier themes, for example, so, or I couldn't find the information I needed. Finding code at that time was really, really complicated. It was so exclusive. So it's either you needed to pay or the videos were atrocious. <laughs> so didn't want to learn really. And Adobe Suite was so expensive. I couldn't afford it. So I couldn't really learn with it. I would try like online tools here and there, but that was, yeah, that was a disaster. Then when I started getting like small gigs here and there, I would start doing logo design. What I would do is that I would use a 30 day free trial of Adobe and I would change emails every month. <laughs> to keep it like free because I couldn't afford it, right? And it would sell logos for like 50 bucks. <laughs> so that was pretty hilarious, yeah. Good way to start. And you, you didn't use like the pirated version. Oh my God, yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, you had to be creative, you know, like we wanted to do something, but then like the market was like, no, you know, you need to have like, you need to pay us. I'm like, yeah, but I'm trying to learn. <laughs> so that was pretty, pretty complicated. I, I remember even the student like offer was way too expensive because I couldn't afford it on a monthly basis. I didn't know because I had a scholarship. So it was like, I didn't know if I could afford it every month, basically. That was another stress. Yeah, exactly. And so you started with logo designs and small gigs. How did you scale that? How did you, you know, get more clients? 
Well, it started with logo design and then actually it was with for small businesses like spas, some jewelry, art designs, stuff like that, even consultants, coaches. And basically, these are people I befriended after, right? We became friends and I would see them on a weekly basis. And well, they just came to me after for, you know, asking me about this or that. So basically marketing decisions. Hey, should I add this about their product, um, their, the design of their place with received clients? And since in hospitality, I would use all that. Like the interior design was important. The um, templates were important. The decor, the smell, the way the signs outside were important, everything. So I had already practiced this 360 degree vision, creative vision for a business. And so naturally, I would just go and give advice for free. I didn't know that was actually a job called creative direction. (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) I would just be like, okay, I can help you. And then they would call me and, and this and that. And I remember telling my friend at that time, like, I don't get it. I help all these people, but I don't feel like I can be paid for that, right? And it's just like the lack of confidence and obviously experience to actually acknowledge that and call it creative direction. So that was funny. And it all started like that. So I did that for a year. Then I started, I created my first website. I was selling some like um, consulting stuff and I had so much fun creating my website. I was like, you know what? I'm going to sell this because I really like it. And it started like that. And I would do it for free until I opened my first agency with a partner at that time. And that was three years ago. So after that, I launched my own agency alone a year ago, Wild Designs. And that was the, so the positioning was different after because then I took a stand and said, okay, I like creative direction and branding and crafting experiences and web design. These are the things I'm good at and, and that I really enjoy. So that's basically how it all happened. And why did you decide to start uh, an agency with your partner? Well, like I previously said, I'm really bad at cold outreach. <laughs> so basically, I had this partner who was very social. We were good friends, and he would just befriend anybody. And he was he was a good salesman. Like he was gifted. Like you have these guys who are just like inner closer, right? And he was one of them. Sorry. So it would just make sense. Timmy. So he would bring in the clients and I would just, well, do the magic basically. So that's how it worked so well. But then obviously we had a disagreement and we parted ways. And that's when I opened my own agency and I was like, okay, now I have to go and how to do cold outreach. <laughs> I can't, I can't run from it anymore, basically. When you started the agency with the partner, I don't think you still charge like $50 for logo design or stuff like that. How did you come up with what to charge? Well, before that, I was actually a freelancer. I've been a freelancer for a few months and I would charge by the hour. So my main uh, focus was to actually help hotels, restaurants, what else, uh, activity businesses to get their processes in check for quality basically, and have a good customer service. Because to all of this, there are principles, just like there are principles in design, just like there, there's a way f- to do this or that. So, And the thing is that the city I was living at at that time, people just inherited those businesses. So they didn't have expertise and didn't really thought about it. They just didn't know why they would get bad reviews or that they wouldn't be attracting clients. So what I would do is basically freelance and be paid by the hour. So I would go into a business and merge with them for like one to two months mission and be like an employee. But what I would do is audit the business, see their processes, rebuild them, put them in place and then leave. So by that time, when I had the agency, I just knew what my worth per hour was. So I just did a calculation, yeah, like that. And I would time myself. So I was like, okay, if I take, it takes me, I don't know, three days to do this. 
for this many hours. And then there's the cost of the tool itself and enlist all the stuff that I needed to make it happen. Like if I needed to buy some stock images or some vectors to gain more time, for example, or whatever, I would just add up all the stuff. And after a few days of calculus, I came up with fixed prices, basically. So it's, it was all based on my hourly rate. I would just make a and take an average amount and the time passed on a project and the price of the tools basically that I would use for that specific project basically. And did you do the same thing when you were like a employee quote unquote for two months? How did you come up with pricing strategy? Well, obviously my price was lower because the whole thing again, I was naive and I just, I just wanted to work because I liked it. That's the thing. So the, the problem with that is you don't get paid enough. And that happened to me a lot, <laughs> a lot. So I wouldn't get paid for stuff that I did. Sometimes I, I had clients work with me for like, once it happened for six months, we had a contract and I got paid only for one. That was like my first one. So that was horrible. And it just... I had to take into account that these businesses actually needed help. So I couldn't overcharge them, obviously, because they were all actually struggling a little bit. And my main goal was to create a before and after them. So once I left, I just wanted them to keep the good practices or whatever I was meant to do there to have it flourish. And the best thing of it all is that I had like old employees reach out to me or I would run into them in the city and be like, we really miss you. Like, it's so different now that you're gone, but we still use all the processes that you created. And that made me so happy. I was like, exactly that. It was horrible because I would work a lot and, and didn't get a lot of money, but it wasn't for that. It was actually to have this small impact and make these people's lives easier with smarter processes. Interesting. When do you think you overcharge? I don't think I overcharge now at all. <laughs> because, yeah, because if people hire you for a job, you know, I would, you know, the first time you get hired, it's, I guess it's hard to like pinpoint, hey, what should I ask? But then after like a couple of months, you can probably ask the owner of the place, say, hey, you know, what changed? Did you get more clients? Are they happier? And, you know, you can probably distract a value out of that at least have more of a sense of what you can charge versus having the feeling that you're overcharging people, which I don't think you are at all. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. The trick is that where I used to live, so that was in the Caribbean, all of these stories, uh, parts of them, at least. The thing is that they have a very weird work culture. Actually, it was pretty normal to not pay employees. So I was shocked when I first learned that. I was like, what? How can you like hire people with the intention to not pay them? Right. So that's what happened when I worked for like six months and got paid only for one month, for example. That was normal because to take them to court, it takes two years. So people are just, they're just way too lazy to do it. And I get it because it takes two years. That's a very long time. <laughs> but weren't you like after two months of not getting paid? Hey, for you, I'm out of here. Yeah, exactly. Well, at that time I had like, again, I was very gullible and I was like, oh yeah, but this project sounds so amazing. So I want to do it. And at that time I was working for an audit firm who was building a 3 million complex. So I was really excited to work on that. And at the same time, I was creating this tourism poll for this little green project. So my time was divided between these two entities, right? And I was so excited because I felt so important. I was like, okay, I don't care. This would look great on my CV, right? So I didn't think about it that much because I was just too passionate and naive about it. But then after three months, I was like, okay, maybe that's not a great idea. <laughs> but they kept saying to you, yeah, we'll pay you, we'll pay you. Yeah, 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 definitely. It was that. It was, okay, I had a problem with the bank, so it's going to be worked out next month. And then my friends in the office would be like, oh, I didn't get paid. Oh, yeah, I just did last week. So it was so random that I couldn't actually make sense of it. So, yeah, I just, I just waited patiently. 
hoping that it will change. But and then again, I had a contract. So that's how, for example, that's what I needed to validate my last semester. So I couldn't leave, basically, because if I left, I would have lost uh, my degree, basically. So it was a, either that or just, you know, suck it up and be patient. And that actually helped me a lot. I mean, the experience itself for what I had to do after. But yeah, it wasn't great on like the mental side of things, obviously. And so after your like endeavor with your partner, you broke up with him business-wise and started your own place, your own um, business. Mm -hmm. What did you do and how, you know, you had to do cold outreach yourself now. So how did that go? Well, funny story. I didn't have to. I just took some of my clients, my old clients with me. <laughs> so they lasted with me until the end of their projects for like six months. And then after that, right before I launched my second agency, so we did this one, I found Twitter. So in 2020, basically. And the thing is that pretty quick, I found Twitter and Utopia at the same time. So I became a Utopia partner really soon and became friends with Wiz of Ecom. So after that, most of my clients came to me through referrals through Utopia. And that lasted until today. But in the beginning, a lot of my clients came to me through referrals. So I just started cold emailing like a month ago, two months ago, something like that. <laughs> so it's really new to me and I haven't had much success so far because I'm really bad at it, but hopefully I will get better. So there was like no other magical technique I did. I just kept my old clients. Some of them followed me and then I had uh, referrals through them and through Utopia. Okay. And you said you found Twitter. How does one find Twitter? I know, right? It's a crazy, it's a crazy story. So in January, 2020, I was just going through a lot in my personal life. Like everything was just collapsing, right? And health-wise, relationships, life, family, everything, money, everything was just a disaster. And when things like that happen to me, I just go into a deep search. I just start like studying something. That's how I cope with everything. And I think that's what helps me a lot because I'm a very curious person. I like to learn. So I started looking into something and I don't know why all the results I got, like the first two lines of the Google search, right? I would find lines from Twitter. I was like, what? What is that? And I was never on Twitter before. I wasn't on social media. I just used it for work. So I never liked it. So I was like, oh my God, I don't want to go into Twitter. And so I would click, find the information, but then some of it would be really hard to reach because, well, I wasn't registered, right? I didn't sign up. So... I was like, okay, you know what? Let's just do it. So I signed up and just kept on reading what I was reading. And I would just get there through Google search results. That's it. I wouldn't spend time on the app at all. And on April 2020, there was something where I heard this, this news where Trump said, I don't know, because there was this whole campaign right before the elections. And he was saying something about blackouts. And I was like, okay. He must be talking about it on Twitter. Like, let me understand what this is all about, right? And from there, I found Money Twitter so randomly, very, very randomly. And these guys were actually all talking and all being supportive of Trump, right? So at that time, and uh, right after I found Utopia and I just signed up, I messaged Wiz. I was like, okay, what's Utopia? What is it about? And he's like, okay, this is for marketers. You can find anything you want. And I was looking for tools to help me grow on my own. So, cause I was already thinking about leaving the agency. I just needed to, to understand how to do it. And I was like, okay, should I sign up? Should I not? What do I do? Cause it, it just felt so weird through a <laughs> Twitter DM conversation. I was so used to like classical courses, right? On Skillshare or LinkedIn pages, uh, kind of stuff, like more corporate look. Right. And so, I was kind of shy and I was like, you know what? Let's just do it. It was nine, nine bucks a month at that time. So I signed up and I was like, wow, this is fantastic. <laughs> and I just started like diving deep and reading articles here and there, here and there. 
talking about it. And that's when he offered me to start writing articles for Utopia. So I started doing that and actually gave me confidence to, you know, sell myself for cold calls and cold email, right? So in, in, in English, my first agency was in French and the other jobs I had was, were always in French or Italian. So I was like, okay, I can do this. And yeah, one month later, I think it was in May, that's when I started tweeting seriously and thinking about it. And very soon I got followed by uh, Charles Miller and Dan Go, and it just confirmed that I had a voice. So that's how it all started. And when you started tweeting, like in, back in May, did you already have like the look you have now on your account? Like, you know, there's also, you could say like the 20K holiday, you know, a lot of feeling to it. There's a lot of aesthetics to it. How did you come up with it? I've already built like some stuff for myself. Like I had a, a podcast a few years ago and a website where people would just book some stuff and buy from me. So, and then I had my Instagram kind of used to have the same aesthetic. So it wasn't really hard. The picture is it's the same. I think I had one picture, one of me in the beginning when I first signed up. So all those who followed me back then know what I look like, but not anymore. And that's it. But the bio is the same one. I mean, this one, I just changed a few months ago, but it stayed the same for the whole time. The account grew. Yeah, not many changes, basically. I just, I don't know, I discussed it with Wiz. I asked him to help me a little bit. And he said, look, so this is how it works, basically, because I, I didn't understand it at first. And then I just sat down one day and I was like, okay, so this is what I want to talk about. And just wrote four topics, themes, and then I'll just tweet about it. That's it. And that was already back in May? Because what kind of things were you tweeting back then? And why did Charles Miller and Dan Go start following you, do you think? Honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> you should ask them that. <laughs> At that time, really, I don't know. But the themes, I remember, I must have that somewhere again in one of my journals. I wrote something like femininity and, and design and basically spirituality lifestyle kind of thing, which is all the stuff that is inspiring to me. And beauty is so part of how I see the world that I didn't know it was a thing until people started telling me, oh, Wild Woman is very aesthetic. I really like your aesthetic. Or I get DMs, I love your fleets, or you really have this taste. And I wasn't aware of it that way, because to me, it was just I don't know. It was just a part of me. It was just so obvious. So it wasn't something I would talk about. And then once I started getting this organic feedback, obviously I would tailor my tweets a little bit more towards those actually themes or things that people would see in me. And what are the things that really drove your follower growth, you think? Honestly, it's pretty wide. It's pretty wide in the sense that I try to audit my audience and understand why. And the main thing, so I have my opinion and then I have the audience opinion and then the friends I made along the way, right? So the friends would say, and I remember having this conversation with Fury a few months back and we would talk about this and he's like, oh yeah, there's something there. Like I could imagine him with his cigar saying that. And uh, so that was like, okay, but... Period. I don't see it, you know, so like, can you please explain? So, but nobody really found the word. So the thing that came out was it's different. There is something, there is something new and there's something different, but people wouldn't find a word to describe it properly because that's what I was looking for. Something to help me keep going to, to understand what it is that they actually enjoyed. But everybody said, Okay, it's just, it's just something about it. I can't really describe. That, that's something a lot of people would say. But then it kept me thinking, and I was like, okay, so if people cannot describe it, that means that it's a feeling. So when they read it, they feel something, and they feel something new and something they're not used to it. So basically, it's just, well, the way I think. And I've had this eco in real life where people would be like, oh, wow. I never, you know, met a girl who would think like this or who did that or, I don't know, behave this way. So this is the first thing. And then in my opinion, I think it's just the way I see 
the world. Because to me, wild stands, again, even the choice of words, it wasn't random. This is a word that in the minds of everybody is going to resonate with a lot of things. Very, very, very different things for everybody. But to me, it means authenticity. It means freedom. Like a wild animal, he is happy in his own environment, completely free to do what he wants, to live the life in total harmony with nature. That's what wild means. It's bravery. It's also courage to actually do what you want. It takes strength to go after that. So, and then woman, that was important because we live in a society where that word means almost nothing anymore. So that was really important to have that because that is something that means something. It is biologically something. It exists. You cannot cancel it, right? So it had to be that. And then with what I was going through in my life at that time, there was COVID and the aftermath of COVID. And then I was creating my own exit, you know, with my own business. And again, and then trying to leave the other business without uh, getting suspicious or (laughs) there was a whole thing with bylaws of the the contracts and everything. So it had to be very smooth. So it was very stressful. And then on my personal life, I was going through a lot. So the message I was sending at that time was about themes like inner strength, about actually going after what you want, about owning being a woman and not being vulgar. It's okay to not be vulgar. It is a thing. Like you don't have to be vulgar to be a woman. You don't have to show your whole body to actually be sexy or, you know, cause we had this message over and over and over again. And that's something my dad would always say. He would always be like, you know, people are temporary. Never forget that. And that is true. People are just here to teach you something, good or bad. It doesn't matter. Sometimes they can stay 30 years or they can stay, you know, one week or one day sometimes. That's the main reason I had to basically go in on even for Twitter. And it doesn't bother me that much. I actually enjoy it because it's it's just the way I see things now. Mm-hmm. I understand. And so one of the things I also find interesting is that you actually you don't advertise a lot of I see on your timeline, I see a couple of times I see Utopia, but you actually you have a, like a Linktree website where you, you know, get a couple of affiliate things and your design agency, but that's not something you advertise a lot. So there are a couple of reasons for that. Now I took away the, the link at the moment because I'm rebuilding it with uh, something else. Because I adapt it every like three months. I review it basically and, and adapt it again. But you are right. I don't advertise it because I noticed that most of my people coming from Twitter aren't qualified. And I see this in the DMs every day. I have big names DMing me for design work, but either they go to someone else because they're cheaper, which is most of the time it's that, or Sometimes I'm at the same price as my competitor because obviously we know each other. We all know, you know, designers between us, we, we all know each other. And I talk to them. I help them. I give them tips and I give a lot of tips to a lot of them. So it's just for me, Twitter doesn't work in client acquisition, basically. It works for a lot of other guys, but it doesn't for me. So I just stopped advertising it there because... It just doesn't work. So sometimes I get people who click on my link and then they contact me, but it's very, very rare. Like it's going to happen maybe once every two months, basically, on the the part where they actually want to work with me, either for web design or brand strategy or graphic design. But most of the time, they're just not qualified. Even if they can't afford it, they choose to work with somebody else. So I just decided to take it off. And for the links, I just advertise, talk about the links that I used that I find value in and that actually makes sense with my whole brand. I have a lot of other links that I do not advertise, but I'm not going to talk about something I don't use. I talk about the Melina letters because that helped me a lot when it first launched in November from JK Melina. 
or I talk about Utopia because that was a great place for me when I started this whole Twitter thing, and it still is today. And also for beginners, they can find a lot of things, a lot of value that I share with my years and years of experience in this. So other than that, these are like the main things. And then the agency course and kind of, you know, all these little products that I, that I used that helped shape or grow my business in a way or another, basically. Yeah. And so how do you land your, most of your clients now? Like I said, I mostly get referrals and people come to me through Utopia. So I have a lot of people that, that click on my link in the Utopia directly. So it's easier because they actually know what I do because I talk about it every week. They know that if they need expertise in web design or web development, they can contact me because I can actually explain what I do and how I can do it and how I can get results, which is not something I do on Twitter. People don't think I can do what I do. So that, that's the issue. That's the interesting thing. Is that also why you think like the quality from Twitter leads is lower versus, you know, like referrals or from Utopia? Yeah, I think, I think so too. But that's the thing. I cannot share the full value on, on Twitter. So sometimes I write like small threads based on the article and then tell people to go read it in the Utopia. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So it's easier that way for Utopians to actually understand and see what I can do. Because I talk about a lot of stuff. I talk about branding and I tweeted something yesterday. I was like, because I was mad because I would see now every graphic designer calling themselves brand strategists. <laughs> I was like, Okay, so graphic design is not branding. These are two completely different things. <laughs> it helps for the visual part of things, but it's not the same thing. And so when they read my articles on Utopia, they see that there is a difference, that it's all based on the experience and not on the visual aesthetic of a brand, which is not just like colors and logo. So I go more in depth into a lot of these things and your marketing and, and CRO and personal branding. And I mean, there's a lot that I've written over these past few months. So it's easier to acquire customers from Utopia than from Twitter for that reason. And then I have my clients that refer me or work with me over again with some of their new projects or collab as well. and. Yeah. And now, like I said, I just, I'm brand new to cold email and uh, hopefully we'll get good results out of that in the next few weeks. And why is it harder for you to like explain what you do or, or give advice on Twitter versus Utopia? The fact that I don't get a lot of engagement on those posts, because I have a few, a few tweets that evergreen tweets and threads about some design stuff. So but I didn't get a lot of engagement on those. So I just figured that the audience wasn't interested at all. And actually, I ran some polls in the last few months, a couple polls, and 70% of my audience is not really interested. They're more interested into the nomad lifestyle, for example, or femininity. I mean, this listening to this feminine point of view about life or work or tips for being more balanced in your everyday life, for example, rather than design. For example, even the community or the groups that I'm in, for example, know what I do, but it's not, how can I say that? And I worked with, with some of the big names, for example. I worked with Dan Go, I worked with Charles, I worked with Wiz. So they know what I can do. It's just that for some reason, I have less weight, I suppose, for that subject than some other people. I think because you have some accounts that are really, really, really positioned as web designers or graphic designers. And me, I have this double hat where I am a designer actually, but people are more interested about the other entertaining part, which is talking about life and, and work and traveling and men and women relationships and all that stuff. Yeah, I understand. I'd like to try and get more engagement, try to get you more engagement on your design threads. Oh, yeah, that would be great. I'm actually thinking about, I'm just finishing big, big projects. Hopefully, I'll be done in June because I just landed two 
huge projects at the moment. But after that, I'm actually thinking about making case studies out of them and actually taking the time to create this before and after stories, which is something I didn't do before at all. So there are a lot of files that I lost, for example, in my old agency or that I don't have access to anymore. So, or even the work I did before. So that's like my main goal. So probably this in Q3, you'll be seeing more tweets, you know, like that in the middle of everything. Cool. Well, let's hook up in the DMs and I'll try to, you know, help you a little bit with the engagement. I think we can get a couple of angles in that are interesting and are aligned with your account and still can get you a lot of engagement on your uh, design threads. So, yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to do that. Cool. And then maybe last question, how can people get a retweet from you? What do you like? Oh, that's a good question. Honestly, I just need to resonate with it. And it just has to be genuine. I don't retweet, for example, like platitudes because, well, it's just common sense to me. So, and plus they're very mainstream. So I think people have access to that. So it's going to be either very valuable information. So for example, Ali Nutrition, he tweets a lot of health-oriented tweets that are very, very valuable. I think that everybody can like um, use this information. I do. Some things that help people skyrocket their business or start anything that has value, that can help you in any form. That's the kind of stuff I would retweet mostly. And secondly, it would be inspiration or things I didn't think of or that I think uh, thought of, sorry, but I couldn't find a way to express it. And then it just hits me when I read it, basically. So there's no recipe to get a retweet. It just has to help others, basically. And if I see it on my timeline, then yeah, I will retweet it. Cool. Okay. Thank you. Sam, this was a lot of fun. Where can people find you? Well, you can DM me on Twitter or find me in the Utopia. Cool. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Yang. This was a really good podcast. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter, sharing your favorite part of this episode. See you again next week. Thank you.